0: Daniel chapter one. It's right after Ezekiel. Kind of read verses one through seven and then we'll pray. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. And who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have given us this day that we may worship you and glory in you alone. And you've given us this time, this morning, that as we worship you, we can sing the truths of your word. We can read the truth of your word, and now we want to hear it preached. We need, Lord, for your spirit to work in all of these things that we would sing unto you according to the Spirit of God and we would hear your word read and preached and we would pray it according to the Spirit of God. May your Spirit work in us according to these truths as we hear your word preached. Lord, we do pray that you would use the preacher this morning, that he would be a man who seeks to please you and give truth to your people. To give words not only of truth, but that the Spirit would own those things of that truth to convict our souls. Lord, there is no perfection in me. I simply come to preach your word to your people, to stand in the stead of Christ, but It is your spirit who does the real work. May the things that are said this morning be used for your glory. We also pray the same for Scott Autry as he's preaching at Redeemer Baptist in Macon. Use him this morning, Lord. That glory be brought unto you through the preaching of your word. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we continue in our introduction to the life of Daniel. As we consider these first seven verses a little more this morning, I want you to first of all uh, recognize a snapshot of Israel's history recognize a snapshot of Israel's history. Now, there'll be some things that I say this morning uh, as we work through some of this and some of the history in the background that will be uh, maybe a little bit new. Some things may be of some uh, repetition, and that repetition is good for us. It gets our minds going, and we tend to put it in our brains, and we can recall it and think through it a little bit as we continue to grow in the knowledge of those things and the understanding of it. And as we come to these verses, when we hear in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, in, in, wrapped up in that is the context of this snapshot of Israel's history. We have to think in this moment, all of these promises to Israel and all of the prospects to Israel had been wrapped up in the land that was given to them and promised to them long ago, that land of Canaan or Canaan. They were constantly thinking about that because they were now and they had inherited and lived in that land since the day of Joshua. This was a context to them that was always present on their mind. They looked at the blessing of God and connected it with the fact that they were living in the land because that was a promise long given to them. That promised land had been given to them after they had been enslaved in Egypt. It had been given to them after they had spent years harassed by the Philistines. They had had that land for centuries up until about 722 BC when Assyria came in and took over the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Ephraim or Israel. And now here we are about 115 to 20 years later, now the southern kingdom of Judah is going to be, in three different steps, exiled to Babylon. So everything they had wrapped up in their mind as part of the blessing of God in the land of Canaan, or Canaan, that land had gradually been taken away from them. Now, you have to think about that for a moment, because there are things in your own life that you have in the context of your own mind and your own heart that are very important to you, and you treasure those things. And you think of those things as something very positive and very good. And it's something to you that gives you strength and encouragement that as long as I have this, I've got everything. You've heard people say in times of difficulty, as long as I've got my friends, I'll make it through. As long as I've got my family, I'll make it through. Well, what if you lose your family? What if you lose your friends? See, to Israel, they had all of this ideology of the blessing of God wrapped up in the very land and the possession of it and the ownership of it, and that blessing to them was God continuing to bless them because they inherited and kept and owned and possessed that land and they lived in it. And now in the span of about 120 years, it it was gone. One part taken in 722 B.C. of the northern kingdom, and now the second part, the southern kingdom, will be slowly taken from them over a short period of time in three successive steps. And this is the first step right here in Daniel 1.1. So in Daniel 1.1, we're getting the life of Daniel in the context of the people of Israel. Israel. Not only would they be exiled to Babylon from 605 B.C. to 586 B.C., there would be a time coming some 600 years later or so that the Jews would be dispersed completely from Jerusalem. The temple would be crushed by the Romans in 70 A.D. and they would be dispersed all over the Middle East and eventually Europe and so forth. It's as one writer said, The fact was so grievous, a shock to the people of God, that even they who believed firmly in the providence of God had severe difficulties to overcome. Now the unexpected had happened. The land was gone what they had treasured, it was that one thing that they had this hope in and it's gone. You have to understand for a a nomadic people in the time of Abraham to move from place to place and place to place and to have the promise of some land that they could call their own and it to be given to them and now it's going to be completely taken away. It would be like a person who had had this great aim in their life to own their own house and own property and they had worked for it and worked for it and worked for it they finally got it they lived there for a while but then it was taken away their home their land as we see the opening of Daniel and looking at the life of Daniel there's a time of grievous complete shock for the people of Israel we can be reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 137 4 how shall we sing Jehovah's song in a strange land you see for years decades what did the people of of Israel done? What had the people of the kingdom of Judah done? The Psalms of Ascent. They had marched to Jerusalem. They had had ascended to Jerusalem for the sacrificial system, for for the, the Day of Atonement. They had gone there. They had done that. And now the land was gone. And as we'll think this morning and understand... It's not as though the people of Israel had not been warned this would happen. There had been a lot of warning that this was going to happen if they continued in disobedience. Isaiah 39, 6, 7 was a prophetic warning of what would happen, and it comes true in verses 3 and 4 of Daniel chapter 1. Think about it. It was now, as one writer says, or one pastor says, it was now a Gentile world. E.J. Young says, the soul of the theocracy was gone. If you're going to have a nation, what's one thing you've got to have a nation as a nation to be a nation? You've got to have land. There's no nation of people that just hovers in the clouds. Well... Maybe some mentally. But physically, there's no nation of people that just hovers in the clouds, right? You recognize a nation not only by a group of people, but this group of people inhabits and possesses a land. As E.J. Young says, the soul of the theocracy was gone. Now, sadly, that's true because... They had so been enamored by keeping the land, they had forgotten their God, the one who gave it to them to begin with. You may, some of you may not enjoy these things, I don't know. Um, But over the last few months, I've gone to this website, worldhistory.org, I'm certainly not touting everything on that website. But they've got some interactive maps, and one of them is a map of the ancient world. And it goes from about 1300 B.C. Of course, they say BCE, all that garbage. But 1300 B.C. down to about 270 or so B.C. And what's neat about this is that you can put a number in at the top of the map, and you can say 800 B.C., And you can see the ancient world and what lands and peoples inhabited the ancient world at 800 BC. And it's interesting to look around the Mediterranean and see all that was there with Egypt and uh, Judah and Israel. And you see all these lands and you you see the Phrygians and and so forth, you know, all there. The Assyrians and, and all these things. It's right there. And then you start changing the dates and you watch the people groups change. 722 BC, the northern kingdom's now gone. Only Judah's left. When you get down to this era from 605 to about 550 BC, you can change the decades in there and just watch Daniel unfold in a sense of what was happening on the map. What God was telling his people would happen exactly happened. And these lands are besieged. These nations are grown and flourish. Babylon lasts for some 70 years or so. And then it's just taken away. The Medes and the Persians combine. The Persian Empire explodes and takes over everything. And Egypt becomes really, really small. But in 1300 BC, Egypt was really big. These nations changing, moving, extending, closing in, being besieged, taken over. And who's the king of all? God's doing it all. And now we've come to a place to see the Gentiles are completely taking over the world. This once small kingdom of Israel which people had feared because their God was great, their land was being taken away. This is the life of Daniel. This is the place that he enters into. Well, I want to answer a few questions this morning. Number one, what happened? Well, Three things happened here in verse, verses 1 through 7 that we need to note. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar commandeered Jerusalem. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar commandeered Jerusalem. Now, by the way, if you're trying to spell Nebuchadnezzar, um, you can, of course, look in your Bible. But I remember it, Chad, Chad, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Alright, so you don't want to say that, Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar, and you can remember to spell Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar commandeered Jerusalem. He commandeered it, He, he took it over, he besieged it. He not only besieged it and took over the land, but the king of Judah was given into his hand. It's an interesting thing to think of how these things would happen. We don't really think about it in America. We've had such a strength in the world for so long. We don't really understand how it is that nations are taken over. We can't really fathom that. We had uh, extreme Muslim terrorists who bombed one of our cities or a couple of our cities. And we just didn't take that too likely lightly and we said nah we're, we're just going to go after some people and we're going to deal with it, we'll blow up some folks too and we, we've lived in that kind of a world mindset, Germany you're going to try to take over Europe, nah Japan you're going to, nah, you blow up our base, nah that ain't going to happen that way you awaken the giant and boom. but it can happen nations are taken over And Nebuchadnezzar, he came in and he took over the southern kingdom, what was remaining of the people of Israel and their land, and he besieged it. He basically starved them out, encircled them and starved them out. He takes their king. But not only does he take their king, number two, Nebuchadnezzar confiscated the temple treasury. It's not just enough that he took the land. But everything that was in the temple that God had prescribed to the nation of Israel and was a part of their temple worship, he took it off, not only just stole it and took it to his land, but he put it in the house of his God. The people of Israel had to be in great sorrow because their land was now taken Their temple was now taken, and everything in their temple treasury was taken. You want to talk about complete humiliation. Imagine somebody coming into your house and taking absolutely everything you own, taking it away, and saying, I'm taking your family out of this house I'm taking everything out of this house and I'm going to take it away and that's my house and I'm going to put somebody in charge of this house and put them in there and it's not your house anymore. We wouldn't like that, would we? It would be a pretty humbling experience. Well, this is happening to the nation of Israel. Everything is taken from them. Number three, Nebuchadnezzar kidnapped the choicest Of children. Nebuchadnezzar kidnapped the choicest of children. As we noted, this was a prophetic work or word that had already been given through Isaiah that there would be a day when this nation would come to its end and its children would be taken. Even some of them would be turned into eunuchs, possibly. Depends on who you read on that. But there's the idea of them completely emasculating the culture. This Ashpanaz, the chief of his officials, depending on how you read that Hebrew word, is the chief of his eunuchs. A king didn't want to have a bunch of strong, good-looking, sharp men around his harem all the time. That would been a problem, right? He would have had competition, and he didn't want that. So he would have officials that he made into eunuchs, and they would serve in his temple. And it's quite probable that this was done to these children who were taken. They were going to be children not only of good looks, but of intelligence and wisdom, understanding and knowledge. They would have this ability to serve in the king's court. Now, think about what the king did in stealing or taking these children. They came from noble families, but now they were going to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans or the context of Babylon. He was going to give them a ration of food, Babylonian food, Babylonian diet. Now, remember, the Jews had a pretty strict diet according to to the Levitical laws and the context of those laws given to them and now they're going to immerse them in Babylonian life. Literature, language, culture, and even food. You want to talk about emasculating a culture. Take them out of it and take every remembrance they have of it away from them. I mean, think about it. What is it? If you Maybe you didn't grow up in this area. What is it about going home to the place you grew up or some place that you remembered going as a young person? There are certain things I enjoy about going back to Birmingham, seeing places that I knew as a child and things that I grew up with. Or or visiting my uncle's home in North Alabama where I would spend weeks on end during the summer, uh, working the farm and fishing and swimming in the Tennessee River. There were things I remember that. It's, It's joyous occasions. And things change over time and you don't get to go to those places anymore and see as much of those places as you used to. And now the people of Israel, they're not only having this faint memory of it, but they're having it. They're trying to just completely erase it and emasculate it out of their culture. Well, when did this happen? It was approximately 605 B.C. Second question, when did it happen? Approximately 605 B.C. Now, Scripture gives us some important information about this time frame. About 605 B.C., this is after Nebuchadnezzar's conquest and defeat of the Egyptians at Carchemish. This is after Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians. There had been a ruler, a Pharaoh, Nico the uh, He was the son of Nico the Twentieth. No, I'm kidding. Nico the First. I didn't want to say Nico the First. I mean, it follows, right? Okay. So Nico the Second, Pharaoh of Egypt. He had marched into Assyria to assist Assyria against Babylon. But you'll remember in the kings, Josiah, king of Judah, who was one of the good kings, he came and decided to force a battle with the II at Megiddo. You see some of this in 2 Chronicles 36 and in 2 Kings 24. So Josiah delayed the Egyptian forces because... He went to battle with Nico II at Megiddo. But this is also the place where Josiah ended up being killed. So since Egypt wasn't able, because of Josiah, to get all the way up there to the north, Assyria was taken by Babylon. Now this is the same country, Assyria, that had taken the northern kingdom in in, in 722 B.C. So now that, that nation, who was supposed to be big and mighty, and they took over the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, now they've been defeated. Babylon comes in takes over Assyria, which means that they've essentially taken over the northern kingdom because it was already under Assyrian rule. Well, this puts the nation of Israel in a bad spot. Well, Nico II, although he wasn't able to make it all the way up there to help Assyria defend its land, he decided, well, Josiah, since you stopped me from getting northward... And you made a problem for me. Now that I'm going to march back southward to Egypt, I'll just take over. He said, you know what? I've defeated Josiah, so I'm going to depose your son. In all of this work, Nico put his brother Eliakim onto the throne. And he named him Jehoiakim. So when you see this Jehoiakim who's the reigning king of Judah at the time he's one who had already been put into place by another ruler and now another ruler comes and takes him over. It's just one succession of defeat after another. You see the nations are changing. Egypt's rule is getting smaller Assyria's rule is over. Babylon's rule is getting bigger. And then Daniel's going to show us that the Persians are going to take over everything. Daniel's living in a great time of change. Here's a young man, probably around 15 years of age, taken to the, into this captivity, and he's seen nothing or known of nothing but great change. And now the greatest of change has come. His own life. He and his friends have been moved. They have been taken to the capital of Babylon. All of this change. Who caused it to happen? Third question. Who caused it to happen? Verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. Number one, God purposed both kings, Jehoiakim and Nebuchadnezzar. God purposed both of them. Now, if you want to think bigger, God purposed the Pharaohs of Egypt. Go back. Think about how Pharaoh wouldn't listen in the time of the Israeli slavery. It was God who purposed that Pharaoh and used him for his glory even when the Pharaoh wouldn't turn. Of course, that's mentioned in Romans 9, right? The same God here. He purposed Necho I, Necho II. He purposed Nebuchadnezzar. He purposed Josiah going to battle at Megiddo and dying. He purposed Jehoaz being taken over. And Jehoaz was only on the throne for three months before Jehoiakim was put on the throne. See, there's a lot of change happening. Who can manage all this change? Can you and I? We can't even really keep up with it, can we? It's like trying to keep up with all the kings and queens of England since 1200. Who can keep up with all that? There's somebody that can, I know. But it's not me. Probably not most of us. When you're reading this text there's been a lot of change that gets us to this point and now we're in the midst of some of that greatest change to try to keep up with it in our own minds is hard enough but can you imagine the being who purposes and controls all of the change and not only that but purposes every single individual's life in all of the change? We get the understanding of Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty people in the text. But you've got to think bigger than that because there's all kinds of people that God is dealing with them throughout all of this. Thousands upon thousands of people. God is dealing with them and working out his purpose for his glory alone. God purposed all of this. Secondly, God gave. Jehoiakim and Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon first of all you need to see the power of God to be able to give a nation over I want you to think about that for a second that, that's a lot of power I mean, I've got books in my library. I've got the power to give you all some of my books. And some of you have used my books, and you've been very thankful that I allowed you out of my gracious, omnipotent power, right, (laughs) over my books. Well, sadly, I don't have any omnipotent power, do I? I may think I do, but I don't. We're not just talking about giving somebody a book or even giving somebody a car. God gave a nation over. That's how powerful he is. And it wasn't just any nation. It was a nation he had purposed long ago to be a display to the world. But they continued in their disobedience and God gave them over to their sins. It's almost another reflection of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Adam and Eve given over. Israel given over. That's by the very power of God. That word gave needs to ring in your brain, too, because when God gave them over, that means he was willing. He was willing to, in the sight of other humans. Now, get what I'm saying here. I'm talking about perspective. I'm not talking about ontology or being. God was willing, in the perspective of other humans, to be humiliated. Because everything is wrapped up in the land, right? And all these other nations are the same. Everything to them is about their land. This is why these kings are always trying to get more. The more land you have, the more nations you have, the bigger you look as a king, and the mightier and more powerful. And God had been the ruler of this one small nation, and now it's all taken. But God's willing to have the perspective of humiliation put on him to show something even greater and that's his power to actually deal with the sin of his people well who caused it to happen the next question why did it happen it's God that brought judgment on Judah and he brought it For their own good. Why did it happen? He wanted to bring judgment on Judah for their own good. There's a reminder in several places in the scripture in Leviticus 26. You can go read some of this. But there's a section of warning and caution to the people of God if they will not obey. Now, remember, this is in Leviticus. This is in the time of Moses that this warning is given. But God says he's going to punish their sins. He says, you will perish among the nations and your enemies' land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies. This is hundreds of years earlier that God had warned them, if you continue in your sin, this is what will happen to your land and your people. This judgment is approximately after 600 to 800 years of disobedience since the time of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Now, we're not very long-suffering in comparison to that. We get frustrated with people if they don't get something after the second or third time. Sometimes we're frustrated with them the first time. You talk about a gracious, long-suffering God... 600 to 800 years of pretty consistent disobedience. And God continues along being gracious. It's not as as though this judgment right here that we see unfolding in the life and time of Daniel, it's not as though this just happened after a couple of years God said, I'm tired of it. 600 to 800 years. Wow. Does that tell you how gracious God is? Why did it happen? Not only so God could bring judgment on the kingdom of Judah, but so that God could bring judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon's day is coming too, isn't it? Persia is going to take them over. Eventually, Persia's day is coming. And when day, Persia's day is coming, then you've got the, the Greeks and the Romans. And the Romans take over the whole of the world. And then all of a sudden, what happens to the Romans? Do they exist forever and ever and ever? No, they're taken over. God does not take His promises lightly. He's always working to bring about the salvation of His people even to bring His Son into a day and age to warn the Jews of the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem on A.D. 70. He gave them. He gave them some 40 years notice. You've not listened to the prophets. There's been a dead time of 400 years. But now, my Son has come. And Jesus is saying, I'm warning you, I'm warning you. Believe in Me. Listen, as is always, there was a remnant of the believing people. God's bringing about his purpose, his glory, and ultimately that means in some cases he's bringing about his judgment. Thirdly, this meant that God was securing the future of his people. Think about this for a moment. Even in the life of Daniel, we're getting a precursor to the power of God in a way that he is going to secure the future of his people. All of this change has to happen to bring about the Messiah at the right time. Israel would fight for some 650 years or a few more here or there to try to have the land and the temple exactly the way it was in the time of Solomon or David. And it never makes it. And it wasn't because, it wasn't because God was asleep at the wheel. It was because God was saying to them, you have forsaken me. It's a reminder to us. Just as we talked about in Bible study, we need to take our sin seriously. We need to be a repenting people of our sin before God in ownership of the promises that he's given us through his son, the Lord Jesus. This is all historical evidence of God working out his purpose for his people. Just a couple of thoughts I want to leave you with this morning. Number one... National and international events are in God's hand. National and international events are in God's hand. Verse 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came. Verse 2 says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim. People are doing things, they're doing it of their desire and of their will. They actually are not just uh, complete robots. They have a free agency. The problem is that free agency is bound by sin. And so they're doing what they want to do out of the sinfulness of their heart. And at the same time that they're doing what they want to do out of the sinfulness of their heart, God is still in sovereign and in control. Even today. Today. Now I want you to understand, this text is saying to you, if you're a believer today, even if you're not a believer, it is speaking plainly and boldly that our God, the one true living God who has spoken to us and revealed in the word of God to us is the God who rules all national and international events. It's just his rule and reign. If your candidate didn't win, maybe they didn't try hard enough. But at the end of the day, their laziness was a part of God's purpose. If your candidate is for some reason, some problem, it's a part of god's purpose. Whatever you think of our president today, a bunch of people voted for him. Whether or not there were some shenanigans that went on or whatever, he's still in the white house. I don't prove whatever you want to. You can prove a lot of things about what happens in Atlanta elections because as long as I've lived here, DeKalb County's always had a problem with elections. Didn't matter whether they were presidential or not. There's always shenanigans going on, because why? Sin's involved. But God was not asleep on the day that Biden got put in that White House, and he's there. Our God is in control. And if you're waiting for the next election to be able to prove how powerful God is, then you've missed the point. God's still powerful whether or not our candidate wins or not. God is still the sovereign ruler of all the ages, whether or not our candidate's in office or not. I may not like it. I may have questions. I may be frustrated about a man who can't seem to complete half a sentence and still try to manage one of the largest, greatest nations in the world. But there's no promise that this nation's going to last forever, folks. You've got to get that in your head. This nation is not heaven. Our God rules and reigns. And he rules and reigns the way he wants to. And he doesn't ask me what candidate to put in. He's got a purpose far beyond what I can imagine. Now, I'll be honest with you. I cannot fathom presently what's going on in our national and state government. I can't fathom it. All they got to do is ask me and I'll straighten it out. I got, I got everything they need, folks. I'll solve our prison system problem. I'll give them everything they need. I could lessen the prison population in about three weeks if they'd listen to what needs to be done. But you know what? They're not asking because they're unbelieving malcontents who hate God. But our God is still reigning, and He has a purpose in all of this. And He's working out things we could never imagine. Because of the way our nation is going, there are going to be people converted that we never would have thought could be converted. And God's going to do it His way. He's going to bring them into His kingdom His way. And that's through His gospel. Glory and honor be unto Him. I'll close with this. There's some other things that I want to say, but we'll get back to them. We need to remember God is God in Israel and Babylon too. He's God in the United States and he's God in China. I don't care what President Xi says. I don't care what Putin says. I don't care what Zelensky says. I don't care what some African warlord says. I don't care. God rules and reigns over them. And if they don't bow before his knee, God will deal with them. I'm not happy about that. I want them to come to Christ. But he will deal with them. And if our nation will not bow the knee to him and listen to the truths that we know that are in the founding of our nation, God will deal with this nation too. And Christians may have to suffer along with the judgment of God being brought upon this country. But we're still to be a light to a dark world. We're still supposed to be the salt of the earth, even if he brings judgment upon this nation. Stuart Alliot said, God remains God whatever happens on the earth. Indeed, whatever happens on earth occurs because he is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you as the one God, sovereign among, not just among the gods, but you are sovereign over all of space, time, matter. There is nothing that is beyond you. All praise and honor and glory be unto you, the one true living God, revealed to us in the understanding of your word, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. May we glory. In the one true living God, in three persons, blessed Trinity. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.